Hello, and welcome to With the First Link, the podcast that hopes to make our future as bright and as just as the one that we see in Star Trek The Next Generation. And we think that one way to do that is to recap and discuss the entire series, one episode at a time, doing our best to look at it all through an anti-oppression, pro-diversity, anti-racist lens. I'm Ruthie Kaupersamoshi. And I'm Matthew Simone, and today we'll be talking about Elementary Dear Data. This episode was written by Brian Allen Lane, with some characters created by Arthur Conan Doyle, and directed by Rob Bowman. It first aired on December the 5th, 1988. So before we get into the check-in topic, uh, Matt, you had a pretty cool experience not too long ago. Yeah, so the Trek Geeks Podcast Network hosted a fundraiser. It was like a live fundraiser telethon called Trek Talks. It ran for, I think, eight hours and had a whole array of really great Star Trek guests. Uh, John Billingsley, who played Phlox on Star Trek Enterprise. We had Jerry Ryan, of course, Seven of Nine from Star Trek Voyager. Jonathan Frakes, you know, from the series that we are watching right now, Star Trek The Next Generation, number one. It was all in support for an organization that John Billingsley, I believe he's the president of the board for, which is uh, the Hollywood Food Coalition that serves like 60,000 meals a year in and around Hollywood, California. Through John, they pulled in a whole bunch of these Star Trek actors, celebrities, uh, community members to to raise money. I think altogether they raised $30,000 during the fundraiser. And then that $30,000 was matched by Rod Roddenberry who is Gene Roddenberry's son and the founder of the Roddenberry Foundation, which supports a number of causes all around the world, uh, including this one. So it was really neat. So a really cool uh, panel that I got to host in the midst of the stream during the eight hours of the day was called Trektivism. This is my favorite thing in the world, Ruthie, is when (laughs) we take our fandom and do real world change with it. I told my story at the beginning of the panel, which is that Star Trek had inspired me and I wanted to take that inspiration and do something awesome with it. I think classically that story is that people go into like engineering uh, or sciences or maybe into film and television. And I didn't see a way into either of those things. I wasn't like super good at mathematics. I really, I love science, very passionate about science. I work at a planetarium, Uh, but in terms of actually doing the science myself, I didn't think that's something I'd be capable of. And, And I didn't really see a way into film and television. So I said, well, like in the most like literal sense, the the characters in Star Trek are traveling around, they're exploring the universe, and they try to do good where they can in that universe. So I thought maybe that's what I could do. So if I couldn't explore up, maybe I could explore outward. I ended up in a program in university called International Development, uh, which is where you and I met at the University of Toronto. Right? It is. I was not in International Development. You weren't in my program, no. We lived in residence together, and we we found each other through the through the love of Star Trek, our mutual love of Star Trek. That's what I wanted to do. I thought like what I could do is I could do good in the world. I ended up living in Sierra Leone for almost a year through another organization that was my co-op placement at the University of Toronto was done through. But while I was there, I met this incredible local community leader named Esther Kanu. She had started her own school for vulnerable women and girls in the middle of the Sierra Leone Civil War, the Blood Diamond Civil War. And I thought, well, why don't we just like help her? I think the same amount of money that it take, took to put me in the field for one year would have graduated like 50 women from her school. (laughs) That's so wild. I know. Like, it's just, it's sort of the efficiency of how we do international development work. So I realized like it made a lot more sense to just like send funds to her directly. At first we did fundraising like informally for a number of years, but then in 2011, uh, we we founded this organization called Esther's Echo because that's literally what we are. We're just the echo of her work. We're just trying to support her and uh, as she champions her own work overseas. And so it's all locally run and operated by her. That school was started without any international assistance. She started it on her own. And all we do is is support her. I don't think it's absurd to say that if it weren't for my love of Star Trek, 
that this this project wouldn't have come about. Mm -hmm. To have the opportunity to then talk with a whole bunch of other Star Trek actors who have all taken on their own causes was an amazing opportunity. It was just like all the threads of my life coming together in one place. So I was joined in the panel by a number of people. There was uh, Armin Shimmerman and Kitty Swink who were representing PANCAN, which is the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. Noah Averback-Katz, who is on Star Trek Discovery, who was uh, promoting an organization called T1 International, which is trying to make sure that people around the world have access to insulin. There's the Pop Culture Hero Coalition. It's an anti-bullying network created by Chase Masterson. Of course, the Hollywood Food Coalition with John Billingsley, which is what the day was there to support. And then the Roddenberry Foundation with... Uh, championed by Rod Roddenberry, and then I got to chat a little bit about Esther's Echo uh, as well, too. So it was, I got to share a screen. I was at a Zoom call with all of these people, and it was like, it was such a dream. My my brother, who is a fan of the podcast as well, it was watching the live stream, and it, he was like, dude, you were on screen with Commander Riker, like people that we grew up watching, and I'm watching you, and you're on the screen. Uh, so just an incredible opportunity. I just want to note, Matt, you you didn't mention that Jonathan Frakes, when you just mentioned all those people, you didn't mention Frakes. Um, but he was there also with PanCan, right? Yeah, that's why. You know what? And you know why I didn't mention it? Um, he was a surprise to me as well. Yeah. So I originally, I didn't know that Jonathan Frakes was going to be in that group. So he was supporting PanCan as well with Armin Schoenerman and, and Kitty Swink. He was not on the list originally for that panel they messaged me the day beforehand so i'm thinking back to the list they sent me yeah but they messaged me a day beforehand saying like oh yeah by the way jonathan frakes is also going to be in the panel and <laughs> so in anticipation of the panel really i was so I, I don't think i've been that nervous in my whole life <laughs> the only other time i could think about where i was that nervous was right before i i, I gave that uh, a tedx talk that i did yeah back at the university of toronto scarborough again where you and i met yeah I was so nervous. And so like for a half an hour in advance, I was just like, okay, I'm just going to turn off all social media, like my phone, everything. I'm just going to sit in quiet for a bit. I think it went pretty well. I think at first, like I was probably really nervous at the start and I don't know if people could tell or not, but once we got into it and we, we, we had a chance for everyone to share the work that they were doing and, and I was just so proud at the end to be a Star Trek fan because I think this is the cool part of Star Trek fandom is is that we take that inspiration from the future and we want to make it part of the present. And that's, you know, that's why I, I was really excited when you contacted me last year about doing this podcast because yeah. th that's a little bit of what we're, we try to do here as well, right? We want to take those issues that are, are talked about in science fiction, you know, that we're seeing it through that lens through Star Trek and, and chat about them in present day. And and so in addition now that, you know, to learn that there's so many of these people that are so integral to Star Trek that are doing work, whether it's access to medication or, or fighting hunger or uh, with the Roddenberry Foundation that provides support to like these startup entrepreneurs all over the world that are trying to promote social change. It was just, it was such a cool thing to see happen. And then at the end of the day, know that there's like $60,000 were raised for uh, the Hollywood Food Coalition. And what we'll do in the description for today's episode is we'll uh, we'll include a link to all these organizations for in sure. there as well. So you can check them all out uh, sure. afterwards too. So, uh, and then anyways, after the Zoom call, after we, we stopped being live, like in the feed, uh, we were like put back into like our own room together. So I just got to share some space and, and Chase Masterson, uh, Arvin Shimmerman, uh, Kitty Swink, and uh, Jonathan Frakes like all stuck around. Wow. And they asked me a little bit more about Esther's Echo. <gasps> so we got to chat about Esther's Echo. That's amazing. It was so cool, yeah, because I was, and I told them like, I was like, hey, just so you all know that, you know, if it weren't for the work that all of you did, like you all contributed to me wanting to do this world work abroad. So I was like, so thank you. And uh, I won't say who, because I think donors should remain anonymous if they want to be. <laughs> but one of them was like, well, give give us the website name for Esther's Echo. And I was like, okay. So I sent them the website link and one of them, 
uh, made a donation afterwards, like a pretty generous donation. And I was like, oh my goodness, That's a amazing. Star Trek person just donated to my nonprofit organization. And it was like my world's all colliding together. <laughs> so yeah, it was very, very cool. Big thanks to Trek Geeks for, for asking me to host that panel and uh, knowing that I, I run a nonprofit myself. And so they thought that this was something I'd be interested in doing. And what I'm hoping is that uh, this 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 notion of Trektivism ends up growing into something bigger. And so we're in conversations right now with Trek geeks kind of back and forth to figure out how we how we make that happen, because I would like this to not just be a one off thing, but there's something that it's more like, I think, formally grounded in the fandom that, that like Star Trek fans know that this is something that we do together because we care about issues. We want to make the world more like the 24th century. This might be one of the ways to help do that. Yeah, it's so I watched it and you also I don't know if you remember this. You called me like the day before it happened. And it was like a mess. Well, well, yeah, also it was my birthday. So you were calling <laughs> to wish me a happy birthday. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, because your birthday was the day before it. That's right, too. Yeah. But it was. But yeah, so you called me and uh, and you were I think you had just found out that Jonathan Frakes might be part of it. And I was like, whoa, how how are you? I Yeah. But you did. You did a fantastic job. I mean, you always. Thank you. You're you are so good at things like that. And and it, you have such a passion for it. And I. I loved what you said. Yeah, I know it was great. It was great to see you there and to, uh, yeah, like just as as your friend to see those parts of your life being brought together in, in such a such an explicit way. I, one of the things that I think brought us together as friends was our idea that Star Trek wasn't just a good show, but but provided us with ideas and and uh, I mean like we're doing with the podcast like a framework of things to talk about of how can we make this world more like that one and it's not yeah it's not just about going to space and it's not just about the science and the engineering and it's also not just about you know the tv shows and creating the art but it's about like we can't rely on you know oh hopefully one day Vulcans will will notice us and and that'll bring us together collectively. We have to we have to do that actively. We can't be passive. So I have a lot to thank you for though, Ruthie, because you you trusted me with being a co-host of the show and as a result of the show, we made the connections through Czech Geeks. And so if you hadn't asked me to do this last year, <laughs> I wouldn't have had the opportunity to that panel. So thank you for for asking me to do this because it ended up it's become such an opportunity to bring so many of my other interests together under 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 one starship hull. Yeah. I'm also really proud that Trek Geeks uh, champions these kinds of causes. And also, I mean, I'll say, like, I, I, there was no doubt in my mind that, that you would be the one I'd want to co-host this with uh, because you're uh. so good at stuff like stuff like that. And um, and also one thing that, that I really liked in watching that panel, and it's still up, right? Like, can people still watch it? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. It's just recorded on a YouTube link, and we can, we'll throw that in yeah. the description as well if people want to check it out. Yeah, one thing that I really liked was hearing Rod Roddenberry talk about how he believes in in those principles of of Star Trek and especially yeah. when you know it can be so disheartening to hear people complain and and you know fans of Star Trek complain about Star Trek getting too woke or whatever and to just really yeah. have a a concrete reminder of no it's this is what Star Trek has always been about and we need to we need to keep pushing it to be even even more about progress and and justice i like to think that those i'm gonna say complaints i don't know what you'd call those exactly but yeah. that it's like a minority of of, mm -hmm. of the i don't know if you can say fandom but it's just it kind of breaks my heart when i hear stuff like that because i think i think if there's one key point to that future 
and I, you, and you and I have talked about this a lot, I think, with a lot of the social issues that we've sort of explored over the course of the last year and a half. But it's like we as a society can't be at our best unless everyone is represented and given space, because otherwise we have talent that's just like sitting on the table that people could be that we could be engaging individuals that have that spark of genius, inspiration, imagination, ingenuity that take us into the future. And but they don't get the opportunity because, you know, because they have been marginalized in such a way that we don't get to hear from them. So when people are like, oh, they're when when use the term now woke, which apparently is now a pejorative term as in terms of how like shows are becoming more diverse and representative. I was like, but that's that's what the Federation was supposed to be. Yes. I don't understand that. I I find that so confusing that when we talk about the United Federation of Planets, it's supposed to be this place where everyone could belong. And I think people are still afraid that like that we're seeing belonging still as this limited value or this limited resource, scarcity resource that if, if some people belong, then that means that I can't. And that's that's what the Federation was trying to prove is that that is not true, that we could all be working together. And so I find that really odd when people respond in that way, because that's the future I want. I want us all to have a spot and be at our best. And who knows what we could do if we could make that happen? Yeah. Travel to strange new worlds. Actually, I saw some people, uh, listeners of uh, with the first link in the chat feed had like mentioned about the show and stuff like that. So so for those of you out there who are listening, who listen to the podcast, who tuned in to the, the whole Trek Geeks, Trek Talks Day and also to our the Trektivism panel in particular. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. I really appreciate it. And we really appreciate it. Yeah, we really do. Should we do a short check in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Let's get into it. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for giving time for to let me debrief that. I appreciate it. Of course, yeah, always. So this episode is uh, elementary, dear data, and there there's some conversation about like about what it means to be smart or like what intelligence is, and so I thought we could check in a little bit about that or like consciousness. I, I guess. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough question. I think maybe I'll I'll start and just talk about like. I have gone on a bit of a journey of my in my own understanding of what it means to be smart or like what that word refers to. And as a youth, a teenager and a very young adult, I think I kind of defined intelligence as like being naturally good at certain things. And I'm sure it's no coincidence that those certain things were also things that I was good at. (laughs) So I was smart. But as I have gotten more experience As a teacher and also just as a person in the world, I find I am less and less sure that intelligence is actually a thing that can be defined. I think that that there are, you know, so many different kinds of skills and so, I mean, like you're talking about diversity, like there's so many different ways to to be intelligent that I I think the term at this point is actually, to me, fairly meaningless. Especially as a teacher, this is probably something you have to grapple with on a regular basis, yeah. right? Because in school is that place where we think like, oh, well, that's where intelligence will shine. But based on whose definition and within what structure of education and what form and everything else, right? Like in the past, it was always like IQ, Right. That was the test of intelligence. And when I think back on it now, like having done an IQ test, like it, it that's it tests a very specific way of thinking. The IQ test is a it's, has been shown to be like a racist and white supremacist test. Like it it tests based on certain values and and certain 
knowledge that's assumed to be common, but it's nonsense. I had the privilege a couple years back of being able to uh, visit SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Oh, right. And where their their array of, of dishes are uh, in Lassa National Park in Northern California that actually listen for signals from alien life. And uh, we did an interview with Dr. Jill Tarter, who is the chair emeritus of, of the SETI project, and founded SETI. But basically, it was her pioneering work that got us even listening for alien life at all. Uh, she is the inspiration for the character of Ellie Arroway in the movie Contact as well, if anyone has seen mm. that movie, which is a brilliant film and you should watch it. But they had a they had a conversation once that I watched live about defining what it is that they're actually searching for. So if it's intelligence, what do they mean by that? Right? So ah. it's like, and also you're limited as well by what kind of intelligence you can also communicate with at this distance. So they brought in, it was like, You'd, it was an amazing conversation because it was a conversation between like radio astronomers and then a cetacean biologist. Oh, cool! Who studies like whale brains and whale intelligence? I'm I'm not doing this conversation justice, and I'm like heavily paraphrasing it. But basically, they were saying like whales are incredibly intelligent creatures, but they don't have radios. So we're not gonna if there are similar beings in say some ocean world, you know, twenty light years away. We're not going to be able to search for them necessarily in the manner that we are now. But are they still considered intelligent, even though they're not using radio technology? Right. So even in that, like we're we're still imposing a, a certain set of, I don't know if values is the right word, but like mm -hmm. we're still imposing like a very perhaps narrow idea of what intelligence is and like how we can communicate with it like we're, we're basically saying like i think this is even a conversation that comes up along a, a special on topics around like neurodiversity that if people don't communicate in a certain expected way how do we change therefore our, our estimation of their intelligence yeah that's a that's a really important discussion to have and a really important thing to be aware of i think and especially like when i think about teaching that in you know you're supposed to evaluate what people know but really what you're evaluating is how they communicate what they know and that's not the same thing yeah or like whether or not they recognize certain like whether or not people recognize certain like social interactions in a certain way or yeah whatever oh yeah 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 uh which comes up often for data actually as a character it does let's get into the episode all right so in this episode laforge asks the computer to create a worthy opponent for data on the holodeck and accidentally puts the entire ship in danger. <laughs> you know how like whenever you like quit something or like want to close something, your computer's always like, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> I feel like the Enterprise uh, yeah. computer needs to do that. Are like, you sure do you, you really want me to create a worthy opponent for data? <laughs> do you want to essentially create a new life form by accident? Uh, well. Yeah, like. Creating an opponent worthy of data will put the ship in danger. Are you sure you want me to yeah. do this? And I don't know. Jordy might have said no. Yeah, there are a lot of safety protocols for almost everything around the Enterprise, but apparently they didn't think of this one. Not this one. It is a little hilarious how easily that this comes about, <laughs> but we'll get into what happens here. Yeah. And, and yeah, so the Enterprise is three days early for a rendezvous with a ship called the USS Victory. So they have some time to just wait around and, you know, hang out. Yeah, it's awesome. And so Data shows up in engineering and LaForge wants to show him this model that he's made of the original Victory, the, I guess, HMS Victory, which is a 
A boat, not a starship. He's like, this is the way to move a starship with wind. And you're like, I guess so. I, yeah. Or this is the way to move a ship. And it's, it's, <laughs> it is cool that like Data's like, okay, but you, you're a warp and like propulsion specialist. And he's like, yeah, but I like to, I like that because I like this older stuff. He, he mentions like simpler days, which I, I think if uh, the show were being made now, I don't know that they'd, they'd talk about simpler days but uh yeah but the nice thing is he made this model of the of the boat for the victory's captain zimbata because he used to work with he 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 worked with that captain when he was an ensign but the Mm -hmm. real reason that laforge called data wasn't to show him this ship it was that they've got time to go play sherlock holmes on the holodeck and then we we start i think this is the first of three moments where uh, a character leaves a room without really giving people much useful information. So like LaForge's assistant is like, where can I meet you? Or where can I reach you if I need to? And Data just says 221B Baker Street. So he doesn't actually say we'll yeah, be in the like, holodeck. What? Data and LaForge enter the holodeck after the intro. Yeah. They're in costumes. So they're dressed as like Holmes and Watson. And they're asking the computer to select a random Sherlock Holmes mystery. And it's cool. Like they, they kind of look all over... They've got all kinds of significance and um, a lot of... I, did you ever read Sherlock Holmes books? I did not. Okay, yeah, I, 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 I've only actually started getting into mystery shows and stuff recently. Okay, yeah, I, I never read uh, Sherlock Holmes. So there are a lot of references which are lost on me. Some of them I, I learned about in looking up this episode. But yeah, like everything in the room has some kind of significance and Data's, data's really geeking out on all of it. It's amazing. Watson's job, I, I I guess this is Watson's job in the books, uh, is to write down everything Holmes says and does. Yeah, and they said it's for their publication. And I, I think that must be in the books, because if I recall in the modern Sherlock Holmes with Martin Freeman and, and Cumberbatch, that he, uh, Holmes, or Watson is supposed to write and publish stuff on their blog. Oh, okay. So I, that must be something from the yeah, books yeah, that they yeah. do a publication and that, that theme kind of goes through to even the modern times. But yeah, I'll admit that I, I don't really know. Yeah. And so it's cool. Like, like LaForge gets sort of, well, first Data gets really swept up in the character and then LaForge sees him playing the violin so beautifully and then that inspires him to, to also get swept up in the character and, you know, he's talking with a, a bit of an accent. And then uh, Data starts to do something which is, really data doesn't know that it's really annoying but it is a really annoying thing which is basically he starts anticipating everything that's gonna happen because he has them all memorized exactly he knows all all the stories yeah Yeah. so before someone knocks on the door he's like oh watson old boy we're we're having company and inspector lestrade uh shows up and then the inspector is is kind of talking about about what's going on, but Data figures out the mystery right away. So basically the inspector's like, this man is a foreign dignitary and he was robbed and uh, refers to uh, Roma people as gypsies using racist term and, and uh, perpetuating a racist stereotype. But basically Data is able to solve the, the mystery in about five seconds. Because he knows right. the end result. So he's not actually solving the mystery. Right. It's that he remembers the script for this episode. So he rips open this man's jacket and there's a photograph inside saying that this person is working against the king of Bohemia. And this photograph is of the king's mistress and was going to be used for blackmail. The Forge basically like 
he freezes the program and just kind of like storms out of the holodeck. Yeah. Like frustrated. What I will say is that there is something interesting about this is that it's like, it's one of the first times that, and I, I think this is might, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it might be important to this episode, is that it's the first time you really see Data have or act from a sense of like ego mm. in a way. Like they allow, they allow him to have that moment where he's like, he's like, I'm awesome and I'm the man and I know what's going on and I'm Sherlock Holmes. And it's like, you don't really see that because his... His character is supposed to be essentially like egoless, you know, that he doesn't really have that yeah. uh, quality to him. And I, and I think in a way that makes Data more, I don't want to say palatable as a character, but we know that he is so far beyond most human capabilities, but he never really acts in a smug way about that. But we get to see him here as a character. He gets to kind of like show off some of that a little bit by in, in acting in the holodeck, which is kind of cool. And I think that actually is important later. Absolutely. And I would say that I didn't take this to be Data showing off to LaForge to be like, look how smart I am. No. I took that as he's in the role of Sherlock Holmes. Yes. I agree totally with LaForge that it's annoying to play a game with someone who, especially if it's like a mystery game, like it's annoying to do that with someone who knows how to solve everything already and then they just solve it, it takes, that takes the mystery away. Right. But I, I don't think Data was at any point claiming that he was solving this mystery. He was just playing the role of Sherlock Holmes solving the mystery faster than yeah. in the story. And this is one of my biggest problems and we'll get into it shortly. Um, but this is one of my biggest problems with Pulaski in this episode. She's acting as though she's trying to prove Data wrong. And and she's kind of treating him as though he's made a claim that he's never made. Right. And meanwhile, I think he's just trying to enjoy himself. Like he's yeah. just trying to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, so people are just trying to yuck his yum. I think so. So I don't, he doesn't understand why Jordy is so frustrated. So the next scene, they kind of cut to them being in 10 forward LaForge basically says, like, uh, first of all, I thought LaForge's reaction was a little bit extreme. Like, I don't think he needed to storm out of the holodeck. The second instance in this episode of someone just walking out of a room without giving any information about why. This is what you brought up, I know, in one of the earlier episodes. We were like, between here and one of their location <laughs> on the ship, do we just not have any conversation? <laughs> like, did they just walk in silence for, like, five minutes all the like, way to the holodeck? Hung out in the turbo lift in silence. <laughs> Walked up to 10 forward in silence. Because of show magic, we we skip all that yeah, and we yeah. just have a better setting to have this conversation. So we're sitting in 10 forward. They're like debriefing what happened. And Jordy's like, listen, we, we go through all the work of like dressing up, getting into character, presumably finding that pipe. Yeah. We go in and there's no mystery because you've spoiled the mystery by memorizing anything. So poor Data, he's like, I thought I was just, I was putting all my skill. This is what I can do. I can memorize stuff. I've got huge memory banks. I know what's going on. But the, the point is, is that because there, there actually is no mystery. And, and so Pulaski is kind of eavesdropping on their conversation. Yeah. And she interrupts and basically implies that Data isn't capable of original thought. Yeah. And she's so rude about it. So we're, this is now the third episode with Pulaski. And it's the third episode where she's basically saying Data's not a real person. Yeah, she's really got it out for Data. She really does. And I like his response where he's like, Oh, I'm sorry, Doctor. Are you able to cease thinking on command? But not in a pointed way either, right? Like he just, I think he just acts, no, I said it, it out of curiosity. Way. He doesn't say yeah, it yeah, in yeah. a pointed way, but I said it in a pointed you're way. Like, you're like, you're angry. feeling on his behalf. Yeah. I got it. <laughs> but 
And I mean, what she says is something I agree with at first. She says humans learn more from a failure than from an easy success. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like there's no victory. She says there's no victory in winning a battle that you can't ever lose. Sure. But then she says that data learns by rote and memorization and right. that she that data doesn't understand the human soul. He couldn't solve uh, a Holmes mystery that he hasn't read. And that is true because he has read all of them. So so there just aren't any that he hasn't read. But I would like to point out that the very first episode where where data finds out about Sherlock Holmes, he solved an original mystery in that episode. Like that was the one, oh, I can't remember what it's called now. With there are the two alien groups and they wanted to join the Federation, but one of them wanted to eat the other one and they yeah, looked yeah, like yeah, dogs yeah. and snakes. They're delicious. And he figured out what was going on. Yes, he did. Yeah. And and I think LaForge points that out is that he is capable of deductive reasoning, but Pulaski's basically saying that like, but that part of the deducing in the Sherlock Holmes books requires an understanding of human psyche. And she also calls Data your artificial friend, Ugh. she refers to with Jordy. And you're like, all right, cool. I don't know if that was supposed to be a slight against Jordy that those are the friends he can have. I don't know. But it's just like, that's kind of mean. It's mean to both of them. It's mean to both of them. They invite her in. They're like, okay, well, let's let's try to figure it out. So LaForge and Dana decide to get the computer to create an original Holmes-style mystery so that it's a new story. And they invite Pulaski. And she's like, sure. She actually jumps at the chance. And so Pulaski shows up. She's also like decked out with with attire from the time. And she's very impressed with the holodeck. They do a quick sort of explanation a kind of a recap, I think, if you don't how really know how the holodeck works. works. Because she says, well, it must be like hundreds of square kilometers. You know, London is huge. Yeah. And they're basically saying like, yes, it, it uses like forced perspective and, and make sure that you don't walk into a wall. But I feel like it also uses like, um, like you know, on your phone or like in any like GPS system, the way the map moves. I feel like it must use that kind of technology where it'll like move your surroundings so that you think you're walking, but you're not actually. You're on some kind of treadmill. This is one of those other things that I need to refer back to in the Star Trek technical manual. <laughs> but I think you're exactly right, is that at some points it almost is like a treadmill. Yeah. So that you're walking in place, but not actually moving. I don't know how that works when you have multiple people in the holodeck, but whatever. Yeah, it's it's magic, a yeah. It's a magic box. Yeah. And it is, as I've referred to it earlier, a murder box. <laughs> and this is why, I don't know how many episodes of, because where there's many more to come, of why the holodeck should not be used ever, because it's yep. a dangerous piece of technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. So a kid runs by them, and uh, an adult yells, Stop him! He stole my goods! But Data quickly realizes <laughs> that this is actually a ruse. It's not. This is not the real mystery. It is It is a ruse, Ruthie. Indeed. It is actually an employee of the Red-Headed League, and that they're being set up to be killed by a snake. That will drop when he pulls the rope or a bell. I don't know if this is like a real story that happens in no. I think Holmes, I think I suppose what it is it is, is um, elements from different Sherlock Holmes stories. But I'm wondering if like was there is there actually a thing in a Holmes story where someone pulls a rope and a snake drops on them? Oh, I assumed there was. I, I don't know. There must have been. Maybe yeah. So Pulaski says that it's a fraud, which is that's a harsh word. It's a harsh word because again, Data is not the one making the claim. That he is right, like Sherlock Holmes. Everyone else is saying this. So I guess Pulaski is also familiar with the Holmes stories because she can recognize that the computer itself, which I guess is also not capable of original thinking in this case, just has cut and paste like different Holmes stories together yeah. and Data can still recognize them. So she's like, 
he's still not really figuring stuff out. So LaForge, whom I think is is acting in the in the interest of his friend and trying to defend his friend, he's like, Data can still solve a mystery. So he goes over to the computer and he asks the computer to create a mystery to confound Data with an opponent that has the ability to defeat him. And this is where the computer should have put up a little, are you sure? Yeah, this is what's going to happen. Data is very powerful. This might not be a good idea, but... LaForge specifically says, because the computer asks for specific, for like parameters. Yeah. And he says, no, create an adversary capable of defeating Data. And on the bridge, which we haven't seen for a while in, Worf is standing there. 15 minutes. 15 minutes in, Worf notices this odd surge of power. Like the ship is chewing all this energy up in the, as a result of this request and then he's like oh yeah it's gone and then he, they just cut away from the bridge yeah. they don't they don't like pay any more attention to it it's like good job Worf this is why people keep stealing shuttlecraft on the ship constantly <laughs> but I also just thought it was odd that I mean not odd but it's kind of kind of cool that usually this doesn't happen you don't see the bridge for like the first 15 minutes and also this is the first time we're seeing like another character so far we've only seen of the main cast, we've only seen uh, LaForge and Data and, and then Pulaski. So we haven't seen any yeah. other of the main cast. So we, now we see Riker and, and Worf. Um, but then, so the holodeck kind of changes slightly. While LaForge was, or was asking the computer to create this new character, someone like a, hol- a holographic someone was watching them. And so now this person says he feels like a new man. And he unfortunately uses... Uh, some racist language to refer to LaForge. I think this is like one of perhaps the only time, if not one of very few times when like LaForge is even mentioned as a black man and it's done in a... Right. I don't like it. Anyway, uh, but then he calls for the arch himself and he communicates with the computer and uh, holographic people, like they're they're non-playing characters. They're not supposed to be able to do that. Yeah, so the arch is like the computer interface, and this like this this other woman who's also like another NPC in, in the holodeck yeah. says that she's like, "Stop this, Moriarty! It's dark magic." And it's funny, Moriarty's like, "Surely the best kind, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the best kind of magic." So Data and LaForge, uh, well, the three of them, Data, LaForge, and Pulaski, kind of start to stroll through London, and Pulaski sort of wanders off, and they hear her scream and notice that she is missing and I think LaForge thinks like this is her trying to trick Data but Data you know he deduces by looking around and seeing where her shoe was left and the kind of the kind of marks that the that these abductors left that she's being carried by two men one is tall one is short left-handed and works in a laboratory because he wears rubber rubber soled shoes and then he's like at last but not least the game is afoot which is hilarious. He makes a pun. Yeah. That's like creative thinking, isn't it? Unfortunately, Pulaski wasn't there to observe it, so it doesn't No, count. she wasn't. But we were, and we I were. laughed. I was like, aha, well done, a pun, Dana. my favorite thing. So someone has been murdered. So they chase they chase after these footfalls, and they end up in this like dead and, end. Yeah, and Inspector Lestrade sees them. And uh, I think at one point, Jordy says here, and I just pointed out, I had to make an, there's an astronomy note here oh, I have yeah. to make, is that... Uh, he thinks they're going to be like, cha- he's like, they're going to lead us on a wild goose chase from like here to Alpha Centauri. Yeah. And I was just going to point out <laughs> that Alpha Centauri is actually the next closest star to our own. Uh, so that's really not that far. Not in Star Trek. No, I thought he was saying the opposite because they are not currently close to Earth. Oh, maybe. They're, yeah. they're far away from our solar system. So it's like from here all the way back home. All the way back home. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I'll let them have that one. You won this one, LaForge. 
they this someone has been murdered and and data's pretty sure that it doesn't have anything to do with their murder. That's like the computer trying to throw them a red herring, basically. Yeah. So LaForge attempts to solve the murder. He looks down and, and, you know, speaking with a British accent, he's like looking at this person and says that I think they've been strangled from behind. Maybe they knew the person, but then the person like jumped them from behind and killed them. And Data's like, no, you're wrong. And basically solves the murder in like three seconds. And it's not clear to me whether Data solved that murder by deductive reasoning because he skips over a lot of like, he doesn't really explain very well how he knows all of it like he know he can tell the person was strangled with like a beaded scarf rather than with someone's hands but he aside from that yeah. he he's just it's not it's not totally clear that this is deductive reasoning this could also be memorization um but that's okay because i believe that data is capable of deductive reasoning so he doesn't have to prove anything to yeah him. so <laughs> and we're getting that to that now because data is noticing that moriarty is watching them yeah LaForge is excited because Data doesn't actually know what's going to happen next. Yeah, and this is what he wanted. He wanted to solve a mystery with Data. Exactly, yeah. So he's really excited about Because I think he wants to see Data in action. Like yeah. He wants to see Data proud of the fact that he that he was able to solve a mystery. So they're excited, and Data has deduced that this this adversary that is, like, is now kind of like stalking them and watching them from the shadows is actually the nemesis, the written nemesis of Sherlock Holmes, Professor Moriarty. Drawing on his knowledge, but... Again, I think it's fine uh, to draw on your knowledge to, to when you're using deductive reasoning. But he is—he knows that the only character who was uh, like a true adversary of Holmes, I guess, is Professor Moriarty. And he says that Professor Moriarty wants to be found. This is part of his game. Yes. He wants us to find him. So they tr- they trace this trail that is intentional. Yeah. Kind of like a very obvious trail. And they find, like, they get into another dead end, but then they see these scratches on, like, a door, and it's kind of like a secret passage. Yeah. And when they open it up, they get into Moriarty's lab. Moriarty is acting strangely. Yeah, it's weird because he knows that Holmes and Watson are not actually... Holmes and Watson and Data like switches to his normal voice and he's like where is Dr. Pulaski what's what's going on and and Moriarty says that he's learning things that confuse him and so he knows about the computer he calls for the arch so they see him do that they know they're not supposed to do that and then he says that this computer has described a monstrous shape and he shows them a piece of paper and he says what is it and then data like his demeanor totally changes he's clearly terrified now for the third time we have a character leaving the room without explaining themselves he just leaves he leaves followed by laforge and calls for the exit he tries to shut the holodeck down but it won't shut down the program keeps running in the corridor he shows laforge what the picture was it's a picture of the Enterprise. Moriarty knows that they are on the Enterprise. There's like this level of consciousness even beyond the scope of the holodeck. Yes. That he knows that he's like a character in this computer simulation. And Data says that Pulaski is likely in grave danger and that they need to go see the captain. Yes. So they're in the observation lounge. The whole crew is there. And the computer tells Picard that the holodeck's override protocol has been terminated on LaForge's authority. But obviously that's not true. So Moriarty has basically stoned LaForge's like access credentials or whatever. Oh, oh, I had a different interpretation. Oh, okay. I thought it was, again, this is where like the the computer should have an are you sure thing that when when he asked for an opponent worthy of data, the only way to do that was to terminate 
the holodex override protocol. Oh, but yeah, but it didn't ask him, right? Right, so, so it yeah. was done on his authority, but by accident. <laughs> That's how I interpret it. Maybe it was uh, Moriarty impersonating him, though. I, I didn't think of it that way. They start walking through, like, how it could have happened, and LaForge is beginning to explain, and he stops himself by realizing, he's like, oh, wait, the problem is that I didn't ask for an opponent that would defeat Holmes. I asked for an opponent that would be defeat Data. So the computer has created this entity now capable of defeating Data. Yeah. And Picard swears in French. Yeah, he says merde. <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious. Because when I saw it, I was like, wait, did you just swear in French? And then I watched, I played it back with like the subtitles. Yeah. And I was like, oh, he did. That's hilarious. Yep, yep, yep. He does it like once or twice in the first and second season. And then eventually he stops. Data tries to describe what he thinks has happened. And he's like, if there was a character that could be able, that were, that were able to defeat me, it would need to require consciousness because that's what I have. Yeah. And so Moriarty has been granted consciousness by the computer and also has access now to the computer's like vast library of information. Worf, uh, of course, wants to send a security team in to get Pulaski, but Data thinks that this could put her in more danger because it's possible that the mortality failsafe has been overridden, which did happen before when Picard was trapped on the holodeck. Ruthie, it happens all the time. <laughs> the, holodeck, the holodeck is a murder box. It's, it's just, it's why do we have this thing on the ship? It's more dangerous than literally everything we encounter in space, <laughs> save like for a few enemies. They're like, it's the true. danger is from within. It's true. Our own dreams are trying to destroy us. Riker wants to know if there's a way to like destroy the hologram generations like themselves so that like, and, and LaForge goes on this whole thing about what could happen if you shot a particle beam through it, it would split. I don't fully understand it, but it's really funny. He like explains it and he's like, yeah, that would destroy all of the, the holographic people. And they're like, well, what about Pulaski? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would, it would destroy her too. Like he didn't, <laughs> he didn't think to mention like, that. You think he would have just opened with, yeah, there's a way to do it, but it would kill her. <laughs> and everyone would be like, oh, okay. But he, he like, it's like he still has to show that he's his cred. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know no, how no, to do that this. Could, it could be done. Would, and, Not safely. Yeah, but here's it could all the engineering done. that I would have to do to make it happen. It would totally work, but it would also vaporize Pulaski. You're like, oh, oh okay. okay so, Why did you even exp- describe this yeah, then? Yeah, yeah. Uh, then Troy starts to sense a consciousness on the holodeck that there's something sort of a developing consciousness trying to sort of come into focus. I think it was cool that, you know, they used Troy in this moment that she could sense that to basically confirm Data's suspicions that there there is now a conscious being that's living on the holodeck. But maybe they haven't figured this out yet, but kind of a theme throughout Star Trek is that artificial beings or like technology doesn't give off empathic waves to empaths. Like Troy can't sense Data. And so it was weird that she could sense the computer holodeck character. I was like, what's up with that? I figure that's like, a, maybe it's just a continuity thing it that could, they haven't yeah, figured out Yeah, it could yet. be a continuity thing. I think it, it could also have been interesting, though, to have her, not just the fact that she can sense, but, you know, she is a counselor. She has some sort of, you know, or she you would think she has some skills in mediation mm-hmm. that she could have had more of a role other than just sensing. This is this is a long-standing uh, critique of how how Troy's character is used that she's used, just kind yeah. of there to to sense things and but not necessarily use the other skills that she has um yeah so that's unfortunate but but you know they got her to say yep there is a consciousness yeah it made me wonder like how many writers of Troy's character have actually ever been in a counseling session or know how counseling actually yeah. works good question <laughs> the ship shakes all of a sudden back and forth and Picard's like 
computer, what happened? And the computer explains that the ship temporarily lost attitude and stabilization control as it was transferred to the holodeck. So now, like, the threat has left the holodeck. It's now impacting the whole ship. So Data decides, or Picard decides that he and Data should return to the holodeck. Yeah, yeah. Data's like, okay, I'll get changed into my uniform. And Picard's like, no, no. I'll put on a costume. I'll put on a costume, yeah, because Data's still in his in his getup. Yeah. Picard has like a he's got like a top hat and he like taps his top hat with his cane and it like pops out. And that Worf freaks out about that. <laughs> Cause Worf is there too. And when like when he taps his top hat with his cane, Worf like jumps and Riker's like, oh my goodness. And it's it's like, interesting because I think this is where they're I they've kind of done this before, but they kind of established that in a way Picard is He's inspired by this time period, you know, this kind of Victorian era yeah. and sort of like gentlemanliness and everything else. So he seems right at home. Yeah. He actually looks pretty good. He's got like a suit oh, yeah. and this fluffy tie and all that stuff. Anyways. So we go to Pulaski on the holodeck. We see the holodeck. She's playing a bit of a, a game or trying at least to play a bit of a game to like not, not know that they're on a ship and not. And she sort of says she doesn't know who Picard is and but... But Moriarty's right. like, no, I know you know more than you are letting on. Yeah, and the more that you protest that you don't, the more I know that you're playing a game kind of thing. Yeah, and and to be fair, she isn't doing the best job. Like, he says something about Jean-Luc Picard, and she's like, who's that? He does have a drawing of the of the Enterprise on, like, a chalkboard. And at one point, he's like, I want to go there. And then she's like, okay, let's go. And I think it's because she knows that if he steps off the holodeck, he will dissolve. Yeah. Because we've seen this happen in, in the previous season as well with characters that want to leave the holodeck. You know, there was a, apparently a slightly different uh, ending written to this show, to this episode. Oh, yeah. Because you may recall that Data took the sketch that, that Moriarty did, he took that out of the holodeck. And showed it to yes. Jordy in the hallway, in the corridor. Apparently, there in an early draft, they had sort of Picard toy with the idea that maybe, maybe Moriarty could also leave the holodeck, but not want to say that. Picard was kind of um, being a bit deceitful when he says, you will cease to exist. But then they decided they didn't like Picard uh, using deception that way, so they just got rid of that potential was the paper leaving the holodeck really intentional or just like a continuity well that's the so so it seems that at one point it was written to be a little bit intentional and then they were like nah never mind so it was a a continuity error that they knew about at the time okay didn't mind pulaski is being treated fairly well by moriarty she's giving like tea and crumpets and he's asking like how many lumps of sugar she wants and stuff like that moriarty does ask if if she's scared of him and she she says no and he says that maybe she should be. And he is calling, he calls for the arch again, but he says he can't remember the last command. And I was wondering, is that the exit command that he can't remember? Yeah, I'm not, I wasn't sure. Yeah, is that maybe like a program safety into him so that he doesn't try to leave? Anyways. Maybe. You know, he wants her, he says, to basically behave as the worm, that she She's is going bait. to be bait yeah. for Picard and, and, and Data. So then Picard and Data, they do enter the holodeck in their costumes and it's it looks a little different the it's very foggy but also like you can see the 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 walls of some of the holodeck so Moriarty is doing something trying to alter the programming in some way uh Picard picks up a tuppence and then is like immediately held up at knife point by a by a robber until Data kind of disarms the robber, he like pinches his thumb really hard. Yeah, and, and they reflect on the fact that he, that because if the holodeck safeties are off, then maybe Picard could have actually been stabbed by this person. Yeah, like the guy who was shot in the big goodbye. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because, yeah, we won't get into it. <laughs> because again. they're in a murder they're box. They're in a murder box. Pulaski's fine, and Moriarty says that he's a civilized abductor, but still dangerous, and makes the ship shake again. He's like, I have this power at my fingertips, and he's making the ship shake apart. Yeah, and then Picard sort of, I think the what they try to do is let the program run its course. So the idea is either Data will be able to defeat Moriarty, or he won't. So Data decides to not try. He's like, no, you're, I concede, you you win. Yeah. But Moriarty, because he has been given consciousness, has has other goals. Yeah, he says, like, basically, he's expanded beyond the character of Moriarty. That's just, that's not who he is now. And he has this desire to live. He wants to, he wants to be, you know, this, this being. And, and he, he kind of talks about the tragedy of what he is now, that he has access to all this knowledge, but he's confined to the holodeck. He, he talks about having like worlds at the at the fringes of his consciousness yeah. that are trying to break through. It's actually kind of like a very poetic self-description. And, and so he's like, if you can't get me out, then murder me. Because it, it's like the, the torture of living in this confined existence, knowing how powerful his mind has become with all the access to the computer. But Picard points out that Moriarty hasn't harmed anyone. And so he doesn't think that he that he wants to harm anybody. Yeah. But he's trying to explain that we don't we actually don't know how to take holodeck energy outside of the holodeck. Moriarty brings up a parallel with Data that he says, "I'm so you don't think I'm alive. But what about him? He's just a machine. Is, is he just a machine? And Picard says he's more than that. But mm-hmm. but there is, and this kind of comes up later in a little bit in Deep Space Nine and then much more in Voyager about sort of the the potential that holographic beings have life. Um, and as yes. we have discussed later on in this season, there will be questions of, of what it means to be alive. To be alive, yeah. This is where I get a little bit frustrated with the episode because I, I feel like here once Picard enters the scene... The character of Moriarty is handed over as a rival yeah. from Data, which is what he was designed to be, to Picard. Yeah. I think there's a really missed opportunity here because this these conversations around what it means to be alive that, that you're that you're mentioning, you can have a lot of interesting dialogue, I think, play out with that with between Moriarty and Data on that point because they share that common struggle now as to whether or not they're defined as living beings. I mean, we spent the first half of the show with the dialogue from Pulaski trying to figure out whether or not Data has creativity. Is he is he capable of, of intuition, of of understanding, of, of solving a mystery? And then we have Moriarty, who is designed to be a rival to Data and have this sort of common struggle as a result. Yeah. But yet now we don't really have any more interaction between Moriarty and Data. They don't even, like Moriarty doesn't even bring this point up between them. I think it, it, there was kind of a missed opportunity there where you could have this interesting foil for Data as a character but then once Picard shows up it's more like now dialogue between Moriarty and Picard well I feel like TNG raises a lot of interesting questions but doesn't always take the time to unpack them and it's I don't think that you need to answer I don't think you know this episode should have given us an answer you know what does it mean to be intelligent or what is it what 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 is consciousness or that but I I would sometimes sometimes when I'm watching this show I feel like oh that's a really interesting question here are all these different ways we could explore it but they don't I say I wonder if that's sometimes an issue with how shows are just formatted back then 
Like everything's got to be done at the end of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> and even then, I think you're right in that there's there's so much here more to unpack, which is why, you know, this won't be the last time we see more Sure. Spoilers a little bit. But uh, and maybe that's why is that like this episode itself goes beyond the holodeck. Like we want to ask more questions about this, but we can't because it's got to be done in 42 minutes. Yeah. And we move on. Whereas now you could have a whole you could have a whole series just based yeah, on this idea. Arc. A whole arc just based on AI. Deep Space Nine did it a little better because they allowed themselves to have more arcs and, and yes. were didn't have to wrap everything up at the end of the episode. Hey Ruthie, you know why Moriarty's able to call for the arch? Because he's the arch enemy. <laughs> You and Data making your puns. <laughs> the game is afoot, Ruthie. The game is afoot. The game is afoot. So Picard basically says, we don't want to kill you, but we don't know how to make you alive. We don't know how to, right. how to give you life outside of the holodeck. Moriarty basically says, okay, well then that's it. He tells the computer to cancel the override protocol to return control of the holodeck back to the main computer. And Picard says, this isn't, this isn't over. We're not going to extinguish you. We'll save the program. And then we'll hopefully one day figure out a way to bring you back in a, a form that is not confined to the holiday. Apparently they wanted to do that sooner, but the Sherlock Holmes work at this point was not part of the public domain. It was still like under the the Conan Doyle or the the Doyle family. Okay. The writers and I guess producers or whatever of this episode thought because this is this sort of like it's a parody, like we don't we don't have to um, consult and we don't have to pay any fees. But when the, the Doyle estate found out about this episode, they were like, no, you do have to pay a licensing fee to use the characters in this way. So it right. took, the, they, they didn't, like, we won't see Moriarty for like another four years because it took that long to like, yeah. figure out the negotiation. Yeah, they don't mention that in that next episode. He was like, when he's like, why no. did you leave me in here for so long? You're like, well, there's licensing. They're like, not only are you and... a holodeck, but we are actually characters in a fictional world. Ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Like, wait, what? Moriarty and Pulaski say goodbye. He says he hopes to see her again. She says she might be an old woman by then. I that's, It was kind of an odd thing to say. Like, <laughs> I, is that really hopeful? Or is that the, us trying to emphasize that Pulaski is an older woman it's, in the show? I don't know. Weird. Anyways, it's kind of an odd thing they, to say. I mean, they're, they had a bit of a... It's it's a weird kind of trope uh, that's often depicted when a, a man abducts a woman that they become friends. Yeah, what is that? What's that syndrome? Something? It's okay. So it's called Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm but syndrome. Yeah. That's like a not a, like a real thing. Oh, probably yeah. It it was a real hostage situation, but what happened was the police who were negotiating the hostage situation were like real jerks to the hostages. So the hostages didn't trust them. So then late they got some psychiatrist to be like, why didn't these hostages trust the police? And instead of being like, well, were you trustworthy? The this psychiatrist or psychologist or whatever was like, probably because when people are kidnapped, they they identify with their kidnappers and this took place in Stockholm. So they called it Stockholm syndrome. But it's not actually oh my goodness. the case. It's it was based it wasn't based on any observations of any real thing. It was just made up. People didn't trust police authority. There must be something wrong with them. Let's invent a syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. So he does say to her that, or when they meet again, he's like, I will fill you with crumpets. (laughs) I like the idea of her just sitting there eating tons of crumpets. (laughs) I mean, there there are worse kidnapping situations, I suppose. 
So Picard saves Moriarty in the program. He says the computer's memory is vast. Yes. And it's sort of a bittersweet ending and, and Moriarty fades away. I will say that um, I don't actually know the name of the actor that plays Moriarty. We can probably figure it out somewhere. But he does a great job. I, it's like one of yeah. the more interesting characters in the show, which is probably another reason why we end up uh, visiting Moriarty again yeah, sure. in a couple of years. They go back to engineering and they find the model of the victory has been cracked. They've cracked a spar, which I'll admit I don't know what that is. Yeah. Uh, when the Enterprise was shaken but is otherwise... Okay. I was thinking, actually, it's one of the things I was thinking about. In the beginning of Star Trek Generations, we're going forward like six years from now oh, yeah. or whatever. Jordy doesn't know the anatomy of an old timey vessel. So I Oops. wonder if they forgot that he built model ships. Yes. They must have forgotten. Because he made a whole big deal at the beginning of this episode about how he like made it. This isn't a computer simulation. He did it himself. He did it. Yeah, yeah. he did it himself. I think they, they forgot that Jordy builds ships yeah. at some point. Uh, LaFour just kind of freaked out about everything that happened and he. He kind of feels responsible. Yeah, but but Picard, I think, does a really a really wonderful thing here that he says that soon the victory will be ship shape in Bristol fashion, which basically means everything will be fine. And he says, and so are we. So he's basically he says like, yeah, you made a mistake. It's OK. I love Picard for that reason, because it's not a like I mean, <laughs> it was a big mistake that LaForge made in really endangering the ship. But if we kind of put that, the potential of the murder box aside, yes. like it's it's important to when when things are OK, I think it's important for a person in like a leadership position to be really explicit about that, to say like, it's OK to make a mistake. You messed up and now we're going to move past it because otherwise, like what, like LaForge is just supposed to be worried that Picard is going to fire him from chief engineering or sure. whatever. So it's just, I don't know, it's just a really nice moment of leadership. Yeah, it is. It's really good. Yeah, the, you know, traveling space and having all this technology is complicated and we don't always know what the outcome of it is going to be. And then that's it. Riker says the USS victory has arrived. The victory arrives. And that's the end of the episode. I want to say one other thing that I meant to say at the very yeah. beginning, but I forgot. Yes. Another reason that I'm really annoyed about the way Pulaski says, like, the way Pulaski compares Data to Sherlock Holmes and says, you know, Data is not capable of original thought. Sherlock Holmes is also not capable of original thought because Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character who was written by someone who knew the mystery. Like the character of Holmes was written by a person who knew the the mystery. And I'm not trying to say like, oh, fiction has no has no use or, or you know, fiction is, is nonsense. I don't believe that. But I do think it's incredibly unfair to use the standard of a fictional character as the bar for deductive reasoning when the person who was doing that actual deductive reasoning was the person who created the mystery. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point. Yeah, it's easy to know how to solve a mystery if you're the one who came up with the mystery to begin with. Sherlock Holmes was not like a real person solving mysteries that that he didn't know about. It was it was Arthur Conan Doyle doing the whole thing. Wow, yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. Yeah, her, you're right. She is being completely unfair to Data. I think a lot of people don't like Pulaski for really like sexist and misogynistic reasons, and those reasons yes. overshadow ageist. the real reason. Yeah, ageist as well, and those reasons overshadow like these super problematic things that she's doing. Yeah, and like you said earlier, when they when they first introduced her, it's like they wrote her intentionally for people to not like her. Yeah. And I I don't know why. Because I outside of this, Pulaski is fine. Like, I, I don't mind her as a character at all. No. 
she has this hang up with data and yeah and i maybe that was because they wanted to have some of these themes throughout this series yeah about data's like let's say humanity or his consciousness and Mm -hmm. and his status as a life form and his rights and that kind of thing i'm not sure so that's that episode. Yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode of With the First Link. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or a podcast provider of your choice. And once again, please make sure to visit the websites of the various charities and efforts being taken on by the people from the Trektivism panel we talked about earlier at the intro. Yeah. Our cover art was created by Nathan Nunn, and you can find more of his work at nathannunn.ca. Our theme song is An Amazing Adventure by Flame Lion Studio. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at FirstLinkPod or send us an email at FirstLinkPod at gmail.com. Let us know all the awesome work you're doing out in the world. Mm -hmm. I'm Ruthie. And I'm Matthew. And remember, even sometimes the captain of the Enterprise has nothing to say but, oh, merda. (laughs) 